The Fool's Highway. That's what we're going to look at today. It's from a text found in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. We're going to, if you have your Bible, you will want to look to those two chapters, 34 and 35. But the text in particular I want us to look at is, it shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. So what kind of fool do you take me for? I like that question. Have you ever had anybody ask you that question? I like it. Why? Because it doesn't assume whether you think I'm a fool or not, because clearly I am. It's really just a question of what species of fool do you think I am? What kind of a fool do you think I am? That's actually a pretty good biblical question. It has good biblical assumptions behind it, because I'm a fool, and there's no denying it. But you know what? So are you. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible has a lot to say about fools and, and their foolishness. And by the way, there's good news and bad news for fools, depending on their variety. Before we look at our particular text today, I want us, of course, to look at the broader context. And uh, as we open up the book of Isaiah, you understand the history there. Uh, God's covenant people have been in rebellion and idolatry, and God has brought his covenant discipline upon them. The northern tribes at this point have already been uh, subject to the Assyrian conquest. Now we know Isaiah is preaching, and we know what's coming, that the Babylonian exile is not far away. And in the midst of all of this, God raises up Isaiah. Isaiah comes as a prophetic witness, if you will, against Israel and their idolatry. And yet, Isaiah carries with him two messages, seemingly contradictory, but there's two messages. In fact, some people divide the whole book of Isaiah between these two messages. Um, and there's the message of certain judgment, but there's also a message of certain salvation. And it's, it's interesting, chapter 34 and 35 that we're going to look at today contain both messages. Chapter 34 uh, and 35 have this seemingly uh, conflict within them, and yet we understand and we will see how these all hang together. In verse, in chapter 34, we see the message of destruction and judgment that's coming. In fact, Edom itself is kind of singled out as a a, comp, a, a country that represents all of God's enemies. And we read these very sobering words. Look in chapter 34, verse 5. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The fierce sword of Yahweh is coming in righteous retribution. And Edom, if you will, is a picture of all of the fate of God's enemies. In fact, look in verse 9 and 10. You can see Edom is actually turned into hell. Verse 9, And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. So we see God will not be mocked. And Edom will be left in smoking ruins. He will be revered as holy, even as he judges all of his enemies. But for the sake 
of the eternal covenant, the covenant that God the Father and the Son made before all the worlds were created, the saving, redeeming purposes of Almighty God will not fail in spite of God's people. Isn't that good news? Why? We see this in verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Isn't that interesting? God's covenant people remain the apple of God's eye, even though at this point in their history, they're in idolatry and in rebellion. God's saving purposes will not fail. So that's chapter 34. Now we move to chapter 35, which I want us to see as, as this is all really one poetic unit, but chapter 35 then comes with this much happier scene, if you will, and it, it's one of the most vivid descriptions of our redemption in Scripture. And, and that's what I found, and frankly, I was reading through Isaiah. I said, boy, if I ever get a chance to preach again, I'd like to preach on this text. And so thank you, Andy, for giving me uh, the call up, get me out of the dugout here to get up on deck here. What do we see in the imagery here? First of all, your desolation is banished. Look at this. Verse 1 and 2, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majority, or excuse me, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. So in chapter 34, God is leveling all of his enemies, destroying all of his cities. And then out of this scene of destruction emerges Almighty God and his redemption for his people. And can you see it? It's it's very vivid in its imagery. God's regenerating grace is revealed in a transformed ecosystem. This transformed landscape can't resist but to start singing in delight because of the irresistible grace that God has poured out upon it. This once dead, arid desert now suddenly becomes Yahweh's delightful garden. 10,000 blossoms bloom, revealing a super bloom of God's regenerative grace. Have you seen that out in the deserts after a a very uh, wet winter? We have what's called the super bloom. That's what's going on here. The deserts are blossoming. The flowering, colorful crocus plant starts to sing. I don't know if I, for some reason in my mind, I think of that movie Fantasia, where you have all these animated creatures that are now dancing, purple hippos singing and dancing and all. Well, now just imagine this whole landscape is alive if we have spiritual eyes to see what God is teaching here. And they cannot refrain from entering into the worship of God and joining with the holy angels. So this parched and arid wasteland has become Mount Carmel, lush and green. This barren desert has become Sharon's fruitful plain. Well, how does that happen? Well, it tells us this. God's people shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. You see, wherever God's grace rains down, abundant life bursts forth. See, the presence of God, and where do we see the presence of God most 
clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. When God is revealed, blessings abound. Death gives way to life as God's kindness overshadows the desert. The promise then of God is steadfast and immovable. Out of destruction will come salvation. He will save His people. Secondly, we see that when this happens, your weakness is turned to strength. Look at verse 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hand and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With recompense of God, He will come and save you. When God comes in His transforming majesty... It empowers and emboldens His people. The weak are strengthened. The timid are comforted. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, the Scriptures teach us, but of power and love and a sound mind. And when we think we're losing our grip and our knees are about to buckle, we hear God speak to us, be strong and fear not. Not because we're strong necessarily, not because we're courageous, but by faith in God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. It is God who saves and redeems his people. It is the Lord who works. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So the Holy One of Israel will come and he will judge his enemies. And justice will finally and fully come to pass. But it's interesting that God comes in judgment, but not in the way that most people imagine. Look at verse 5 and 6. He comes in a transformative way. Look, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you remember this story from the New Testament? In a moment of desperation, John the Baptist, the forerunner of our Lord, of course, and and Jesus said was the greatest of all the prophets, was a little bit despondent because he had been arrested and thrown in jail by Herod. And you remember the story. He sent word to Jesus. He wanted to know, are you really the one? I mean, are you the Messiah, the promised Savior that we're looking for? Are we supposed to look for another one? I imagine John at that point in, in his uh, imprisonment was hoping for a little bit of chapter 34. I want to see some messianic judgment and maybe some divine vengeance. That sounds about right because John the Baptist, he was in prison for doing what? Doing what God told him to do, which was preach the truth. He just happened to speak truth to power, right? And Herod, in order to defend Herodias the adulterous wife and the the wife of his brother Philip ends up doing her bidding and having John in prison and ultimately executed. We know that story. But what does Jesus do to reassure John that God's redemptive purposes are fine? They're right on track. Everything's good. He refers to this passage. Look what he says. Go tell John 
what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Salvation has come, and it has come in the person of Christ. God's saving acts were very evident to everybody who had the eyes to perceive them. The signs, the miracles, all pointed beyond themselves to God's work of salvation. The spiritually blind now see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The spiritually deaf are now hearing the call of God's gracious kingdom. The spiritually lame are now able to walk in the paths of righteousness and praiseless tongues of unbelief are now fluently singing the spiritual songs of Zion. The promise of God is true. He will come and save His people. Jesus, we know, is that glory of God, the majesty of our God in the flesh. And in the person of His Son, the vengeance of God was revealed, but not in the way most expected. Jesus didn't show up riding on his bloody apocalyptic steed. No, he showed up on a humble donkey riding into Jerusalem. We know God's holy justice demands satisfaction. And it was perfectly satisfied. God the Son would bear the sins of his people in his death on the cross. And our hope is one day that all the wrongs in this world will be made right and all of its injustices and all of its inequities would be banished. We long for a day when righteousness and justice will prevail and all of God's enemies will be judged. The bad news is that by nature, all of us are God's enemies. We're all born enemies of God and children of wrath. And we prove it every day because we've all sinned against the majesty of God's glory. We are all most worthy of the sword of Yahweh were He to come and render pure justice. But the very good news is this in Romans 5 verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. By grace through faith in Christ, God spares his people from the inevitable wrath to come. Either the shed divine blood of God the Son will blot out the looming death sentence that we all face, or you will face God's righteous wrath on your own. One way or the other, every sin debt will be paid to the last penny. So either you will pay it for your own sin or some worthy substitute will pay it for you. What does the scripture say? There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's good news. All who repent and flee to Christ shall find pardon for their sin. But apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin.
Fourthly, we see in this imagery that those who come to Christ, those who experience that salvation, that their spiritual thirst is satiated. Look at verse 6. For the waters break forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert, and the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So Edom's hellscape, remember, that we looked at before with streams of tar and pitch and fire. They've all been born again. This infernal wasteland has become the happy habitat of springs and pools. Sparse uh, patches of grass that you might find in the desert have now become as lush as the shores of the Nile with reeds and grass abundant. And God's grace, therefore, we're seeing in Christ brings His life giving waters to the death valleys of our soul. If anyone thirsts, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. There's nothing more pitiful, if you've ever seen it, but as to see somebody who dies of dehydration. I wasn't going to bring it up, but all of us saw those horrific images years ago when Terry Schiavo in Florida was essentially dehydrated to death right before our eyes. It was horrific. It was horrific. And yet all around us, everywhere we go, there are people dying of spiritual dehydration. Jesus is there. Rivers of living water, lush and abundant, are available. And yet in their pride... And in their hubris, they refuse to come and drink. The gracious invitation of God stands. Come to Christ. Drink without cost. And thirst no more. Have you drank the living waters? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart? And if you have, then... The end of this passage, which is really what I wanted to preach on, is true for us. Your way home is absolutely secure. Look at verses 8 through 11. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And even if they are fools... They shall not go astray. That was the phrase that got me. We'll come back to that. The image here is God is our cosmic civil engineer. He's built a highway for us all the way home to heaven. A super highway for his own people. This rugged wasteland has been transformed and conquered by Christ. Now the valleys rise up and the mountains bow down for the highway that God is building for His people. And notice it's called the way of holiness. It's a pristine road, unpolluted by godlessness and rebellion. Love of God, love of neighbor, fill the hearts of those that are on heaven's highway. No one can traverse 
this sacred street without first having been clothed with the righteousness of God in Christ. See, the problem is there is no way I could get on the road apart from Christ because there's no inherent holiness in me or in you. We need it from outside of us. An alien holiness, a foreign holiness has to be given us. And that's what we're promised in the Gospel. This highway can only be for those who are clothed in Jesus Christ because Christ has become to us righteousness and sanctification. That's the word holy. And our redemption. Jesus is our only hope of being found on God's highway. And I love this. It says it shall belong to those who walk on the way. See, if you are in Christ, you belong there. He gives us this holy road. It's ours. We're not trespassing. Sometimes I feel like maybe I snuck in here, you know. How did I get on? No, God redeemed us. Because we know we disqualify ourselves a thousand times in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And if I have to get on the highway of holiness in my own self, I don't belong. But God says it belongs to you. It's irrevocably yours. If you are in Jesus Christ, I hope that encourages you today. But this is the phrase that got me. Even if they are fools, how many fools have we got here today? They shall not go astray. Take a big breath. What a sigh of relief. If you're legitimately trusting in Jesus Christ and you're on the road, even if you're the most foolish Christian, God's going to get you home. This is very good news. As I said, you know, this world is filled with fools and only fools. That's all that's in the world. But thankfully, God delights to call the foolish his own. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And see, as we said, there's no escape from this. Either you're considered a fool by this world for believing in Christ, and they mock and malign you, or you'll be considered a fool by God because you refuse to live as if he's there. So what kind of fool are you? Or better, whose fool are you? I love what the Apostle Paul said of himself. (laughs) I am a fool for Jesus Christ. The so-called wise of this world, the wisdom of this world, mocks us because we dare to confess the Lord Jesus. But we must pity them and pray for them because they are lost in their foolishness. And by the way, so were you at one point. The defiant unbelief that they so revel in, they don't realize, has reduced them to absurdity because the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And you know, they will ultimately pay the the price for that, won't they? In hell forever. Remember, though, 
if it weren't for the grace of God, that's what you would be doing. That's what I would be doing. In fact, I'd probably be out leading the parade on the way to hell had it not been for God's grace intervening in my life. If you are wise because you fear the Lord, it's not because you're so smart. It's not because you're so spiritual. It's because God is kind. God was merciful to you. So God's highway is for fools. Fools who have acknowledged their sin and fled to Christ to find help. The highway to hell is for those fools who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. May God have mercy on them. And I love this. The foolish shall not go astray. God's highway has guardrails on it. (laughs) Thank God. It's a foolproof highway. So there's hope for people like me. Left to our own, we would never make it to heaven. We'd be falling off the highway all the way along. Remember growing up as kids, we'd ever, every, back in the old school days, we'd go out and rent go-karts. And what did they do? They lined the go-kart track with old tires. Remember that? And your kids are out there and we're bouncing off the tires and all that. That's God's highway for you. He's put the guardrails up there. And I'm pretty much bouncing up against them all the way. I wish I could say, oh, I I can stay right where I need to be. No. But the good news is God has put the guardrails up. Maybe you've seen this. When kids go bowling, they put those little things in the gutters so that they can't throw a gutter ball. And no matter what they do, they're going to hit something. That's that's God's highway. We've got the little padded guardrails to keep us where we need to be. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God hasn't abandoned us to walk this highway in our own strength. He's empowered us and given us His Word and Spirit to lead us all the way home. Because God doesn't just start our salvation. He saves us all the way to the uttermost. And He will not fail to get us all home. Not only is God preparing a place for us, He's paved the way there. Verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing can detour us, not even our own foolishness, nor any outside demonic attack. You're not some slow-running uh, lion chow, right? For some predacious beast to come and get you. Satan may roar. He may accuse. He can do all he can, but he cannot reach you on God's highway. You've been bought with a price. The very blood of his son. Not one of his redeemed children can be plucked out of the grip of his mighty nail-scarred hands. You know what? That might even make a Presbyterian want to sing. (laughs) Maybe. Oh, yes. Well, what does it say? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Christianity is a singing religion. Have you ever noticed All the other major religions in the world are not singing religions. Why? 
Because we get to sing the song of the redeemed. We are the ransomed people of God. We have been liberated from sin and slavery. And Christ brings us out of bondage to sin and He's liberated it just as God liberated Israel out of Egypt. God liberates you. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Every other religion, every other false religion says, try hard and maybe you'll make it. As a ransomed church of God, we sing the songs of freedom. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus declared. Remember, he was in the synagogue and he opened the Isaiah scroll. And he begins reading out of Isaiah, which some have called the fifth gospel. Isaiah is full of gospel truth. And what does he say? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs resound as we make our way to Zion. Our heads are anointed with the oil of gladness and worldly sorrow and sadness are displayed with everlasting heavenly joy. He has given us beauty for ashes. And listen, if you listen real, real, real clear, can you hear it? We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Help me. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. That's the song of the redeemed. And if you listen real carefully, you can even hear Presbyterians harmonizing with the Pentecostals. Oh my goodness. We all love the Lord for His grace in what He's done. And that's the natural overflow of the heart of the redeemed. So if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ today, I encourage you to rejoice. Let's allow gratitude to fill our hearts. And if you will, let's pump up the praise because God is worthy of it. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise and give thanks to Him and bless His name. That was our call to worship and it's our exhortation today. Trust in the Lord's ability to get you home, even when you've been foolish and weak. And ask God to pick you up and dust you off and get you going back on God's holy highway. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, don't be that kind of fool. Don't be that kind of fool. Flee to Christ. Avoid the wrath to come. God gives you the greatest incentives to do it. And you already know it's the right thing to do. Flee to Christ. Ask for the forgiveness of your sin. And He will give you abundant life now and eternal life forever with Him. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this phenomenal portion of Your Word that is so encouraging to us. Thank You that There's a place for all of your people on your highway. And we ask, Lord, that we would come singing and rejoicing in what you have done for us in Christ 
And Lord, that we would have that confidence that you will bring to completion that good work which you've started in all of us. Thank you for that. Lord, we pray for those in our lives who don't know you. Lord, we think of family members. We think of friends, co-workers, neighbors. Lord, who have not heard your voice. Lord, we pray for opportunity to share the gospel, to bear witness to them of the great salvation that you have wrought in your Son. And Lord, we pray that out of the abundance of a a life that's filled with the Holy Spirit, you would use us to bear witness to the grace of God, which is available only in this life, to those who will flee to Christ. Make us unashamed of the gospel of Jesus and use us in this church to advance His name and His glory. In His name we pray. Amen.